Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Pastor Steve Macias and Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor. Hello, everyone. Here we are again with our podcast, which attempts to uncover biblical truths or principles behind some of the ordinary questions of life. I'm Andrea Schwartz, and today my co-host Steve Macias and I are going to explore the question, who is more important, the individual or the group? So Steve, first of all, is this even a relevant question, and if so, why? Well, it's a, certainly a relevant question to our culture today, because it is at the root of this question that we determine how we run our lives. Uh, in a time in moral decay, such as the United States today, uh, we look to political or even state solutions for our problems. And this question of the group versus the individual takes us through a journey to decide, uh, do we allow what's good for the entire group to decide what's right? Do we decide what's right for the individual? And we can see in our culture today that just as it did 2,000 years ago, the referee of whose priority is respected becomes the person who has the most power. And today, that is either the state uh, or the government. And that really limits our ability to express our faith, as we see today, as the state comes down on the church through uh, its various devices, or through uh, the decay that's happening in our schools or our families. And so this question really is the uh, crux or, or the crucible that determines what we believe about God and what we believe about the future of our, of our nation and our world. So philosophically, philosophers have discussed this question. They don't always say the individual or the, or the group. How do they frame the question? Well, going all the way back to the Greek philosophers, Heraclitus and the lot, uh, through the works of Plato, through uh, the early church fathers, the medieval period, they have described it as the discussion of the one and the many. The idea of the, the singular versus the, the plurality. Uh, and this dualism, these two competing identities, have come into every philosophical discussion, whether it's ethics or identity, gender, whatever you might imagine, the temptation throughout Greek and medieval thought was to divide the world into the competing interest of me as an individual, which at some times has led to a kind of a radical individualism or anarchy, or the community, the group, the state, which is inevitably led in our last century to totalitarianism, communism, and the widespread death of liberty and individuals. So in, you said a conflict or a competing interests, Rush Dooney often talks about that statism and humanism in general perpetuates a conflict of interest, whereas only with a sound orthodox biblical theology do you have a harmony of interests. So if this is a question that's been ages going on, what's the biblical orientation to who gets precedence, the group right. or the individual? And that's an excellent question. In contrast to the dualism of, of pagan thought, the Bible puts forward the idea of Trinitarianism, the idea of 
of God being both unity, uh, oneness, and diversity, many, the idea of the Holy Trinity being both uh, eternal and imminent, meaning forever and nearby. And this idea creates what philosophers call a dialectical tension, meaning that two ideas that seem to compete with each other are held together in a tension and that they actually work themselves out by both existing together. And so this was the problem for the ancients. They were always competing or putting these ideas against each other. Should it be the one or the many? And the Trinity, which is uh, found in the very beginning pages uh, through the words of Moses in the book of Genesis, is the resolution. The idea that God is three persons, yet one being three uh, hypostases, three faces, three individuals, yet one being, one essence, one God. And that itself is a, a dialectical tension. And so men like uh, Gordon Clark or Dr. Rushduni, Dr. Van Til, the presuppositional men, recognize that the solution through uh, this age-old dilemma is not to choose one or the other, but rather that the Trinity is the example or the template for how every institution reflects this dialectical tension of the one and the many, the three and the one. So most people, if they understand the Trinity, what they'll say is, oh, that's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And depending on certain expressions of faith, people make the sign of the cross, and that will be the extent of which they understand the importance of the Trinity. And some people go so far as to say, well, you'll never see the word Trinity mentioned in the Bible, and they like to minimize or head away from, and ultimately, Unitarianism, at its root, is anti-Trinitarian. Is that correct? That's right. And unfortunately, most Christians, even though they confess the Trinity, uh, have such a poor knowledge of what the doctrine implies or involves that they are functionally Unitarian or functionally anti-Trinitarian without realizing they are. Now, to answer the first objection, I said that the beginning of the book of Genesis invokes the idea of the Trinity. Let us create man in our image. Uh, this is, from the very beginning, the idea that creation is a reflection and a pattern of God, not a Unitarian God, but a Trinitarian being. And so from the very beginning of creation, when man is placed in the garden, inside the idea of creation is placed this order upon the universe, that everything that's created by God reflects his own essence, his nature. And so when we look around to everything we see created after, uh, after God's image, has in itself this Trinitarian mark in it. So we should expect that from the very beginning, um, our roles, our vocation, our jobs will have a Trinitarian identity, that our relationships, man and woman, marriage, will have a Trinitarian identity. Our families, mother, father, and children, will have a Trinitarian identity, and so on. As they gather uh, a group of people to create a community, the church will have a Trinitarian identity. As they go out and conquer beyond the garden, the state will have a Trinitarian identity because it goes back to these things reflect the natural idea of who God is. So let's just kind of bring this down to the ground here. I think some of the expressions in our society of this dilemma, this problem not being resolved biblically, 
leaves Christians who are antinomian at heart, even if they're not antinomian by profession, at a loss. So, for example, you have this transgender issue that says this person identifies as something other than his or her biological sex, and this person wants to participate in a sporting event. Well, you can't say that it's wrong for this transgender person to participate because the individual should be allowed to express himself or herself or however you say it because it's so confusing, which, which pronoun do you give them? And it leaves people to the point where they think they can solve these problems apart from a biblical theology, and they can't. Right. Well, and in this particular situation, uh, you get to see how the, the many different diverse opinions can't coexist. Uh, so with transgenderism came a whole bunch of political implications. Uh, there are, now are doctors who are being trained in medical school to recognize a diversity of genders, to be compelled through uh, status medicine, to continue to operate or contribute to the mental delusion that is transgenderism through surgeries. And because uh, of this happening even younger and younger, children as five or six years old pretending to be drag queens, uh, our schools have now had to have teachers trained to accept transgenderism, our bathrooms, people can switch genders, invading the privacy of others. So the chaos that ensues by allowing the diversity to be unchecked uh, is inevitable. And so here in the transgender discussion, we see that if you put all of your weight on the diversity aspect, then chaos will come because who is to say what is right? And this is exactly what's expressed in the book of Judges, where uh, they continually say over and over again, every man did what was right in his own eyes. There was no king. That's when the diversity, uh, which interestingly, is the word that the, the leftists of today pride themselves on. But when the diversity is unchecked by what is one or true or unified. Even the abortion issue can be viewed from the one and the many. We have women who say, it doesn't matter that this is a life that's apart from mine, my future, my preference and when society as a whole will say, no, we can't sanction murder, right? The answer goes back to, you can't tell me what I can do with my body. Now, of course, that will not hold up in eternity, but when believers do not have the answer and find the answer in the Trinity, I think that's how major aspects of the culture are lost because they don't use the weapons that God has provided. That's right. Well, and if you read uh, Dr. Rushton's book, Foundation of Social Order, he talks about how every uh, heresy is found at the denial of God's sovereignty. And in this book, he particularly talks about you know, Arianism and denying the divinity of Christ and how those were excuses, not necessarily because they had theological weight or because they thought Jesus actually taught those, but they separated themselves from the idea that God was the only truth. You see, uh, and this idea of diversity is this kind of implicit idea that man could be sovereign or come to know truth himself, or that maybe there are many different truths and we could all find our way to some equally valid or relevant truth. And so what ends up happening, especially in 
that like the abortion debate is by moving the sovereignty from God says thou shalt not kill to the individual to say, well, this is my body, my choice, is there also comes a separation of knowledge. If God is not recognized as the source of authority to say thou shalt not, then he also cannot be the source of knowledge. And so every movement that moves away from God's law also moves away from God's wisdom, from his ability to know the truth. And that's why we can have such chaos in the abortion discussion when people can look at an ultrasound or they can look at uh, the, the DNA sequence, or they can look at the gestational progression of a fetus. They could see the heartbeat, see the fetal pain, and then yet still decide uh, who's to know what is life. So it really is not an intellectual issue because obviously a boy is a boy, a girl is a girl. And in order to embrace this chaos, as you put it, we have to deny obvious truth. And the same is true with abortion. Clearly, the baby is, not, is, is inside the mother's body, but is not part of the mother's body. And yet, people continue to think it's an intellectual issue when in actual fact, I believe it goes back to Genesis 3-5, where every person wants to determine for himself what's right and wrong. And that, as you put it earlier, is a blatant attack on the sovereignty of God. That's right. And the one and the many is important for our discussions because it gives us a view of history. Uh, all of the ancient worlds couldn't put this piece together because they didn't have what we would describe today as a Calvinist view of history. They didn't understand that God, or they didn't want to understand that God was predestinating history and that it was inescapable that God was the author, the architect of the beginning and also the future. Every culture, whether they were Egyptian or Greek, uh, any pagan Mesopotamian culture, had this idea that history was static, that those who were in authority were in authority, and that's the way it was going to be forever. Yet, from the very beginning of the book of Genesis, we're given an idea that history is not static, that history is sovereignly molded by the hand of God, and that he is going to bring about a change in history. So whereas the Greeks prayed to the gods to maintain their social order, save their king, keep their way of life, preserve their health, all that fun stuff, it was ultimately a static idea of political identity. But in the book of Genesis, Adam and Eve are given a promise that the seed of the woman will come to crush the head of the servant and things will be made new again. There will be a change in the future. And so the idea of the one and the many uh, challenges that because it says that how things are is going to change tomorrow because God is orchestrating his change through the use of regular people who submit to his law and order. Now, at Calcine, we think education is really important. We think it's important for children. We think it's important for adults who have been miseducated as children if they went through an educational system that didn't declare Jesus Christ as sovereign Lord over all things and over all subjects. But a lot of people want to relegate the whole idea of the one and the many to this is philosophy, and you don't really get into philosophy until somebody's in college. Well, what's the problem if you don't inculcate this correct philosophy from the time children are young? The first thing you have to acknowledge is that philosophy is just a type of theology. And as 
uh, Dr. R.C. Sproul is prone to have said, uh, everybody's a theologian. You're just either a good one or a bad one. <laughs> and unfortunately, uh, most people are bad ones. You know, it's just like uh, the, the Pixar movie Ratatouille. Uh, <laughs> everybody's a cook. Uh, just some people are good and some people are bad. And so with young people, if we refuse uh, to give them an idea of what is true, of what is good, what is beautiful, then what they're left with are the crumbs of the secular world. Uh, by not giving them the idea of the one and the many, which sounds complicated, but it really begins with one basic premise that a two-year-old can understand is that there is a distinction between the creator and the created, that there's a God and you're not him. I think any two-year-old can get that. And that's the basis of the one and the many, that we all exist and we have a culture and an identity, um, but there's also a God. And we are not the gods of this universe. You know, it's funny, I look back and when my children, my older ones were young, I was learning this stuff. But by the time my third child came along, I'd been into it for quite some time. And so I honestly thought I was a better mother and teacher at that point. I used to joke and said, you have the older teacher, but I think you have the better teacher. But there are things that can be explained and the simple thing as you have a family of five or six and mom makes dinner and one child doesn't like meatloaf. And in some families, every individual is catered to because this person won't eat this and this person won't eat that. And they talk about having picky eaters when in actual fact, if you're in a family, a oneness, you're a member of that family, an individual. However, that tension that you talked about said, okay, we're not going to have meatloaf every night, but everybody else likes meatloaf. So you either learn to eat it, even if you don't like it, or you eat less that night, and then tomorrow night we'll have something different. But these lessons can be taught. And interestingly enough, if you're teaching the law of God and you're teaching God's word as being necessary to apply to even mundane things as to whether or not you're going to eat meatloaf, you'll discover that people start living and thinking biblically, which then bodes very well for the future when they have more important decisions to make rather than meatloaf. That's right. Well, and those important decisions, there's only one solution. Uh, we have, and, and if you read the one in the many, you get this impression from Dr. Rushduni is that there is this general idea in modern thinking that there are many ways to run a family or there are many ways to run a state or many ways to run a society. And we can point to different people and teachers in history, whether it's Plato in Rome or Aristotle in Greece, and that they're just different ways to organize things. But what Rushduni adds to this conversation and brings down to people like you and me is that all of those other philosophies were ultimately bankrupt and Everything that you really value as an individual liberty or a right or a, a growth or, or something that you value about Western culture today, whether it's medicine or, or education, women's rights, anything that is good, true, and beautiful uh, to us today stands really in opposition to all of these ancient systems uh, that the world under Aristotle was a, a world of secret doctrines. It was a world... 
uh, of, of mysticism. Um, the world of Plato was a world that said that the state was God on earth and did not allow the individual to have any ideas uh, of its own, that the state was the highest form of being or man's truest life was expressed in Roman identity. And so what we have to recognize about Christianity and really this philosophical idea is that Jesus introduced a new unit of being, and that was uh, the family. The, the family in the new world after the resurrected Christ was the most rebellious. <laughs> yes, yet it was the most unifying system to come out of the Christian church. The family stood against the entire Roman system. It had a different law than the Roman Empire, but the family, that basic institution of faith and life, is what overthrew the paganism of every culture that Christianity came into contact with. And it wasn't that the family was something special in of itself of having a mother, father, and son, but rather that it followed the pattern of the one and the many, of us coming into recognizing that God was sovereign over individuals, had given a standard for how do we live, and that obedience to that standard promoted prosperity, flourishing, and true health. That Christians were able to move and advance the kingdom of education, philosophy, medicine, everything that we value today, because they respected God's natural imprint into this world. We, in a sense, by embracing the family in the first century under Christian ideals, were able to reverse all of the decay that had happened previously. The family became the vehicle by which Christ's dominion was exercised initially in Rome, Corinth, uh, Ephesus. But eventually, the promise is that the family, this institution, will have dominion over the entire world and that Christ will reign as the head of all of these families. So in a very real sense, it's important to put on the glasses of Scripture. If we don't, we're either going to be nearsighted or farsighted, our stigmatism will make things blurry, but it's the only way to ensure that we don't become imbalanced. Because quite frankly, who doesn't want everything their way naturally? Right, And people will say, well, this is what's good for me, and then they'll try to convince other people that what's good for them then becomes good for everyone else. And that's where politics, I think, ends up being the most important thing in most people's lives, when in actual fact, even Bible, so-called Bible-believing Christians, because they don't know their history of this, they don't know the philosophy, are often swayed by conservatism as being the opposite of liberalism, and realizing that neither one of them is the answer, Trinitarianism is the answer. That's right. I mean, we can look at uh, John Locke and consider him a conservative, or even we can even look at Rousseau, and he could be conservative compared to uh, later Kantian philosophy or even today's you know, uh, nihilism. Conservatism is just an expression of a, of a gradient. But all of these philosophical movements were going towards what Christianity already promises, a hope for the future. Now, the problem with uh, pagan philosophy is their utopianism is based around man. It's based around humanism and the consolidation of power around a few individuals, a king, uh, a parliament, right? 
Um, and that's what's significant about the Reformation. The Reformation was also a reorienting of the Christian church around this balance of the one and the many. The power had been consolidated around Rome, around the Pope, around cardinals, around uh, foreign uh, religious leaders. And Calvin says, no, the, the law, the civic law of the Old Testament is the standard even into the new covenant. And popes have to be subordinate to that as well, that we have one standard, the, the Holy Scripture. And so it is the, the tradition of the Reformation to bring it back to uh, this dialect, dialectical tension of the one and the many. When you think about it, you talked about previous societies wanting to keep knowledge a secret and not share it with all because they didn't want to give up their power. In the Christian faith, we're commanded to teach our children. We're commanded to have them know the rules that govern us and that the rules that govern us are also the rules that govern them. And that's the reason why as children in our home, they're to obey us because it's part of God's structure. Um, so increasingly, I find myself saying these important doctrines need to be taught to the two-year-old, the three-year-old, the four-year-old, the five-year-old. And if you can make it understandable on that level, chances are you really then do understand it yourself. And that's right. And this is really the great freedom and liberty of the law of God. Uh, every culture, Greek or even modern Hindu, has this idea of a great pyramid of static existence, you know, the caste system. The, those who are at the top will always be at the top. Those who are serfs or slaves uh, will always be slaves. And that's how every pagan society functions. Yet here comes Christianity, and contrary to the static systems of Rome or any other culture, and says man, woman, and child are going to be equally ultimate based on the essential identity they have in the image of God. And so everywhere Christianity has gone, it's destroyed that pyramid of, of hierarchical being and elevated men, women, and children and said, you, as an individual, shall reign with Christ. No other culture, no other religious philosophy, as hopeful and as, uh, <laughs> as flowery it might become, has made that promise and has succeeded in the way that Christianity has. And we can say that we may not know the answers now, but those answers are found in the scripture because God has left us with his word and his spirit. And those two will never contradict each other. Amen. All right. Book recommendations. Well, of course, you have to read The One of the Many and uh, the Social Order book by Rush Dooney. Uh, but it's also important for us to uh, understand that the larger picture here. So reading some of the philosophical things uh, by Gordon Clark, like The Lord God of Truth, to understand how important that type of thing is. Uh, but also understanding how this plays out in history. I think you've been leading a study on the revolt against maturity to show how obedience to, to God's philosophical law system creates a great culture and a great individual. And by contrast, when you divorce a biblical psychology or a biblical philosophy from life, then you get, you don't even get good hybrids. You, you get, things that seem almost right, but then there's constantly the dilemma that says, 
this problem can't be solved. We need to get somebody at the top who will force it on everyone else. Well, Christianity is the only religion that says when the Holy Spirit gets a hold of you, he changes you, and there isn't that tension anymore that says these problems are unsolvable. You know, even if you don't see it right now, that there is an answer there, and the hunger and thirst for righteousness is what spurs you on to go find those answers. Amen. Uh, and if anybody's interested in going to uh, beyond Rush Juni, maybe you're really interested in the philosophy here. Uh, Dr. Kuiper has a great series of books that have been republished uh, on the sacraments, on the church. Those ones are, are very uh, well put together. And if you want to find, uh, even before then, maybe a survey of how Western culture has been formed philosophically by Christian and biblical thought, uh, there's a great series that were put out by Padea Press, uh, by Dr. Herman Duyverd, uh, The Roots of Western Culture and The Twilight of Western Thought. And those are kind of the origins, uh, 150 years ago, that gave us Van Til, gave us Clark, gave us Rush Jimmy. Let me say, even going back to the book, The One and the Many, it's a thick book. But get yourself acclimated to, to these concepts, because if you don't, then you won't have anything to counter the humanistic solutions or the humanistic premises. And so it's not too late. If you care, you can learn. And since there isn't a test at the end of the week, you can be doing it in such a way that you don't go any faster than you can see application. And I think that's a great way for adults to be educated. You know, sometimes we think that Education is school, and school is tests and reports and, and multiple choice and true and false, and that's not why we educate. We educate so that we'll all be useful to the kingdom. That's right, and uh, there's a, a great thing I went through as a, a 20-year-old Christian. Dr. Ronald Nash, uh, who was a student of uh, Gordon Clark, did a series of lectures at Reformed Theological Seminary. Uh, on the history of philosophy and Christian thought. And he goes from the very beginning of Greek philosophy all the way to our modern age. And it's a very digestible way of, of getting a foothold in uh, Christian philosophy as well. And one last thing, go to the Chalcedon site, and we have a resource section, and there's facets on the left. You can pick your topics, and then you can put phrases in the search bar and maybe initially you don't have time to sit down and read the book on this subject, but it's scattered throughout Dr. Rushduni's writings, other Chalcedon writers, what they have to say. And you'll begin to see that you get a feel for it. And then you're able to tackle maybe the weightier books and things of that nature. All right, Steve, Till next time, thanks for your insights as always. All right, Lord bless. And listeners, you can always reach us at outofthequestionpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.